Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, The Survival Guide for Dentists. We're on episode 101 and we have a very special guest, Nikki Humphrey. A little backstory, Nikki is a parent of one of the kids at my kid's school and we somehow connected on Instagram and through going to school together and she is truly an inspiration. She called herself a life coach, but she's much more than that. She's an inspiration. She's a great person. Her story is really, really good. Some of my guests on here hold back a little bit, but Nikki really goes into the deepest and darkest parts of her history and shows us how she turned it all around. Talks about God, talks about surviving trauma, overcoming trauma, talks about even self-harm, and some of the things she would do to herself in her deepest and darkest moments. But there's such a positive spin on the podcast. This is absolutely an amazing podcast. I also want to mention that Nikki does do life coaching and personal coaching for people. And for her products and for my guests only, she has provided a code for 20% off some of the products she is selling. So the code is shine 20 for 20% off. Go to her website, which is communitaswellness.com. That's C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-A-S-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S.com. I think I'm saying that right. And check out just all the amazing stuff she has. Nikki, thank you again for the amazing podcast. And guys, you're going to love this one. Bye. Do you feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel? You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski, former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10 minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to cashflowcoachusa.com, scan the QR code or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. I want to start off and ask you a question. Why do you care so much about helping other people? Why is this your mission in life to improve the lives of your clients? I care so much because for so long, I felt alone. I felt alone. I felt helpless. I felt unwanted. I felt that I was beyond hope. And I don't want anybody to feel the way I felt for as long as I did. What does it feel like to feel so lonely and hopeless and out there on your own? I mean, it just feels like you're in a pit of despair and you can't claw your way out. 
I personally got to a point where just like, you don't think it's going to get any better than this, that your life is this bad and it's always going to get bad. In fact, it's not going to get any better. So you become so extremely depressed and, but I was high functioning at depression. I don't know if that makes sense. Cause like at my job, when I was teaching kindergarten, I could go all day long hard with those kids and give them everything I had and really enjoy that time. But as soon as I stepped out of that atmosphere, it just, the depression, the sadness, the despair just hit me like a ton of bricks. Was teaching almost like a distraction from what was causing the depression and loneliness? I don't think it was a distraction. My my aloneness, my unworthiness started at a very young age at people telling me things like, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, I, I'll never amount to anything. And so when I was teaching, I would go after those children who I felt might be on the same spectrum that I was. So I felt like I was helping the kiddos when I was there and help them stop them from going into the depression, despair, like I did to really build them up and give them the tools necessary to be successful at five and six, seven years old. Who was telling you at such a young age that you're stupid and you're ugly and you're worthless? My mom. Oh my gosh. So your mom had her own demons that yeah. the only way she could express it was anger and terrorism towards you. Correct. And I feel like it's a generational trickle down. So at what age did your mother start speaking this way to you? Like, I remember things she said to me when I was like three years old. So of course you feel despair and depressed. We'll say maybe in your twenties or thirties, cause you had a terrible right. foundation. Yeah. So as a three-year-old or even as a five, cause I, my kids are those ages. When somebody tells yes. you you're, you're stupid and you're ugly, what do you think? It's like taking a sticky note and putting it on you. Because when somebody says that, that you are supposed to know, like, and trust, you think if they say it to you, everybody sees the same thing. And so you're walking around just thinking, well, I am this thing that, that this person told me. Because what they're supposed to say is supposed to be fact. Because at five, you don't have enough evidence, Nikki, to go out there and say, I'm not stupid. I did this. Right. Or I'm not ugly because I look like this. Correct. And it's like if you do something wrong or, you know, you make a mistake or, you know, you don't do as well as somebody else does, you immediately go, well, I'm stupid. I'm not supposed to know that. When you got older, let's say teenage early 20s, mm -hmm. were there parts of your brain that were thinking, maybe what my mom was saying isn't true? Or when did you start to even have a glimpse of that? I mean, there was there was highlight. Like I said, I could be highly functioning, like in college, like I really found my groove in my major, like I was um, a child development major, elementary education, you know, 
early childhood education specialist. And so I really found my groove into that. And I had a lot of success in college, but it was always short lived because I would always go back to where I felt safe in that other identity. Was the, I guess, was it short lived because all your success was external? Correct. I had nobody feeding into me. How did you make that change? Because you don't seem depressed now. Not. You're not. You're smiling. <laughs> You're glowing. Yeah. So I say joy is my superpower now. Walk me through that because there's so many dentists listening that are depressed as hell. And right. what are some steps or let's, let's, let's create a blueprint together and how to go from Correct. rock bottom to joy yeah. being our superpower. So it wasn't until my mid-30s, I was at my friend's house waiting for her to get ready. So she went upstairs. Her husband came in into the room. This is not a person I, I liked. I respected. I, I didn't think he was a good husband, dad, or whatever. But we had a conversation, right? Because two of us are in a room and he was kind of saying like, what's wrong? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And I just feel like I'm like, I'm so depressed. I don't want to be here anymore. Like life sucks. Like I just gave him the whole spiel. Right. And he just looked me, looked at me right in the eye. And he's like, you know, Nikki, God loves you no matter what. And I was like, dude, like God does not love me. God would not God does not love me because he didn't protect me. All these bad things happen. And I just name the spiral of, of yuck that I grew up in. And then all the abusive relationships that I got into because of that. And I was just like, he doesn't love me. And he's like, trust me, he does. He's like, you can't outrun God's love. My friend comes down the stairs. We go out. I kind of like slip that in my back pocket. And after that moment, like it, it just kept like, nagging at me. I'm like, well, what if God loves me? What if he really loves me? Like, what if I, I wasn't a mistake? What if I'm not stupid? What if I'm not all these things that I thought I was? I'm like, what if? So I started to dive into that. I got connected to a church. I went to a Bible study. And when I was in those atmospheres, people are speaking life into you. People are listening. People are building you up. And before that, even before that, I went to the best of the best psychiatrists, psychologists. Uh, I went to U of M. I saw specialists like everywhere. Like if there was a pill or if there was a therapist or if there was a doctor that treated highly depressed people, I saw them. And so they would say things to me like, Nikki, there, there's nothing else we can do. We, we did all the cocktails. We did all the things. There's nothing left for us to do. You will feel this way the rest of your life. So back again, when that guy said that, I was, and I went on that what if train and I got plugged into a church and a Bible study, it just sparked something. And this is what I say to my clients a lot. It only takes a, a pinprick to start letting the light in. So that conversation with the guy caused the pinprick. Me getting connected in a church opened up 
that hole a little bit, getting plugged into a group of women who were speaking life into me did that too. It opened it up. And so I wasn't feeling, it wasn't like a, a this translation, but I started to feel hope. And I think if you can spark the light of hope in somebody and get them on a positive trajectory, you've made the step out of the pit. Like you're not living in complete darkness. You have one foot out of the ground and you're ready to go. Isn't it? And so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Isn't it ironic that the person that you didn't have respect for, you right. didn't like, is no. the one that was that little pinprick? Correct. And I think oftentimes God will send the most unlikely person to spark change in somebody's life. And so that's why I encourage always be open to what people are saying to you, because I learned at a very young age, right? People can either speak life into you or death into you. And so look for those people, even if it's the most unlikely one to speak life into you. And so after I got plugged in and I might, I was feeling a little bit better. And I really found a group of people that would not only just uplift me, but challenge me and almost like give me the tough love I needed and spur me to go forward on my healing journey. And that meant changing a whole group of friends, which is hard. This is wild to me because you're seeing the best clinical psychologist Correct. They're basically saying you have what's called treatment-resistant depression. Correct. Is there any point, let's say, early 20s, early 30s, where not that you think God doesn't love me, but you think yeah. God doesn't exist? I always thought God existed. I just felt I was unworthy of his love. Okay. Because I had done so many things that I was ashamed of because I was depressed and gotten really bad relationships. And that, you know, and you just, I had, um, it triggered an eating disorder that I had for 25 years. I would self abuse. I tried to commit suicide, you know, and you, I felt like God was looking at that and judging me and is like, mm, this one's not for me. But it turns out everyone is for God. Correct. So, can you articulate what it feels like to hear from a doctor you have treatment-resistant depression? It'll tick you right off. So it makes you mad. Like, I'm like, you're supposed to be the best. I have already like used up all my insurance I possibly could for mental health. There was a cap on it for where I worked. So once you use that cap, it's gone. You're paying out of pocket. So I'm just spending thousands and thousands of dollars a year, you know, trying all these things. And they're like, this is the best you're going to ever be. The, you know, the one a woman, she said, you will, no one will ever want to marry you. Who said this? No one the doctor? Ever, my doctor. Oh my God. Nobody would ever want to put up with this. And of course that opens up all of the other wounds that I had. So just like, not only did I grew up thinking this certain way, I have the best doctors around here saying that 
no one will ever want to marry me. Um, I should never be a mother because I'm so depressed that I would, would never be a good mom. And I was mad. I was just so angry that all these people I went to, nobody could help me. What does this anger feel like day to day? It's just, it builds upon itself and every thing that you do, again, every mistake that you make, every bad relationship that you get into, every time I would self-abuse or self-harm, it would just be like, well, it happened because I'm untreatable. Like, this is my condition. This is the best I'll ever feel. So no wonder I made all these mistakes again, because that's just who I am. It's a very defeating mindset. Like you said, if you don't yeah. have hope, the next step forward is three steps back. Right. What does self-harm look like? Self-harm looks like, I mean, I would literally, I mean, this is going to sound crazy and it probably was, I would just beat the crap out of myself. Like I just wanted to stop hurting inside that I would externally hurt myself. Like you would, I mean, I would punch yourself or you would like, correct. Yeah. yeah. Pull out my hair, like anything to make the pain stop. That doesn't sound crazy because if you know anything about self-harm, um, when yeah. people, let's say they cut themselves, they do mm -hmm. it because they rather focus on that pain then right. uh, so Nikki, I promise everything you're saying does not sound, it's helping a lot of people, but it makes yeah. sense. Cause you feel so worthless. You rather feel the, your own immediate pain of pulling your hair out right. than the chronic yeah. crushing pain of self worthlessness. Right. And you can treat the pain that you cause. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you couldn't treat at least at that time. Right. So you leave the doctors they say, Nicole, you have treatment-resistant depression. You're, you're right. driving home. What's your thought? Yeah. Just kill myself, end it, live yeah. this way? Drive off the road. Drive off, yeah, drive off the expressway and be done. At this point, I'm assuming you don't have your daughter yet. You're not married or what's your relationship status then? No, I'm just, I'm still in my like mid-30s. So I'm like 35. I didn't get married till I was 38 at my daughter when I was almost 40. Okay. So you're 35. You're not 25 mm -hmm. anymore. You're 35. Are you thinking like, I wasted all this freaking time. I'm never going to get all this money. money yeah. I'm like, I could have went on some nice vacation. <laughs> that may help my mental state better. <laughs> yeah. And then did any part of you think there is hope or was it only until you met your friend's husband, not met, but talked to him and that gave you the- It opened up my mindset that maybe there's other things that I wasn't considering. When he said that? So I got, no, it opened my, okay. What he said, like opened my mindset. So over the courses of like months and church and Bible studies and, and getting a new friend group, I remember something else that another teacher told me like years ago. She's like, you got to see my homeopath. Like this was years ago. She's like, I promise you he can help you. I promise you like all that junk you're on is not helping you. And this is just my story. Like this is not medical advice yeah. or anything. <laughs> I just, this is me. <laughs> um, but so after the doctor said like I was untreatable, nothing was going to help me. Like her voice 
came back to my head. I'm like, I remember when Sonia told me about that doctor and I like shut this woman down for years. And then it was kind of like walking up to her classroom day one day and be like, you know, remember that doctor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you thought you said could help me girl. Like, can you hook me up with his number? <laughs> and so I, I did that. I, I changed the, the game, right? I had, I changed, I opened my mindset and all the other doctors always said like homeopathy wouldn't help, like supplementation wouldn't help, diet change wouldn't help. And I'm like, I have nothing else left to lose. I am untreatable according to my doctors. Why not go check out what this guy has to say and see where we go from there. So I made the appointment. I go in and this guy, he's just, he's, he's like my kind of guy. He's like, no nonsense, very black and white, calls it like it is. He looked at me and he goes, you're effing crazy, but I can help you. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is my guy. This is, I'm doing whatever he says because he's, he's, says he can help me. And so I followed his homeopathic protocol. It calmed a lot of things down in my brain. A lot of issues that I were having went away. And again, like that opened up another layer to me. Like I never thought I would feel this way. And my brain is calm and I don't have these anger outbursts and I'm not self-harming. And it was amazing. When you saw the homeopath, did you mm -hmm. already let God in your life or was that yeah. pre that? Yeah. Was, oh, you already did. Yeah. Okay. So that was like, like I said, it just opened up my mindset from like what the guy said to me to going to church, getting connected in the Bible study, changing my group of friends, like that all opened me up to let new experiences in. Because every time I took a step forward and trying something new, it was almost like I was met with more freedom. So between the ages of 20 to 30, for me, I was an atheist. Yeah. Um, as a, I'm religious growing up. I rebel against the Catholic church. Then like 30, early 30s, started having kids. I let God back in. But yeah. can you articulate what it feels or felt for you letting God back into your life? I mean, it felt like I was wanted. It felt like, I mean, he says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. He says he knits us together in our mother's womb. And that was the first time I thought I was created on purpose, that I was a mistake. I was, I was wanted, I was needed. And it felt really good to have someone love me. How did you get yourself to believe that? Cause I'm sure you coach some clients that say, yeah. I don't want to hear this God shit. And you're thinking yeah. like, well, that's kind of like the core of my message. Yeah. How in your brain did you say to yourself, this is true? Or, the, the hardest question is faith. 
How did you develop yeah. the faith to believe that God is real and he is here to help? I had one of those like on your knees epiphany moments where just I was going along good and all of a sudden, boom, I hit a brick wall and I felt like my whole life was falling apart again. And I got on my knees and I was just like, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. Like I am done. I am so mad. I'm so disgusted. I am done. I, I can't do this. And then all of a sudden, like I felt this presence over me, like somebody was over me, like giving me like a hug and embrace. And I just felt like warm with love from the inside out. And I was just like, after that moment, I knew that God was real. I knew that he was always with me. I knew that he loved me no matter what I was going through. He was going to be there to help me. Did it take my problems away? No. Did it make the situation better? No, but just knowing, having that confidence that I was not alone meant everything to me because for so many years, I just felt so alone. I think that's such an important point to make, Nikki, that you let God in, he loves you. It does not mean he comes down makes everything better, gives you all your right. medical insurance back and makes you a millionaire. It's, yeah. I equate that to that's your spark of hope right there. Like your yeah. life's still super shitty, but like now right. you can take some steps forward. Yes. Yeah. And it is, it's like, it's every time you take a step forward, it opens up a new doorway. It opens up a new opportunity. It opens up your mindset to different possibilities that are out there. But if I would have just stayed in that pit of yuck and hate, that just festers on itself. That just feeds on itself. Depression loves to feed on itself. When somebody's depressed, it just will feed it, feed itself. It's like this monster that cannot get enough to eat. Depression truly changes your vision. Like you can be looking at the yeah. same thing as a person who's not depressed and see right. two totally different things. Yes. So let's say someone is ignorant to God. Mm -hmm. How do you practice living a life full of God? And how does that help in you and your clients? I think, you know, not all of my clients are believers. And I think that's okay because they're at where they're at in their journey and I'm at where I'm at in my journey. So there's no comparison. There's no like, if, if you don't believe in God, you're not for me. It's not it. I think where I start with clients who are non-believers is where I felt most looked over in my care throughout the years. So I think so often, doctors, teachers, family members, whoever, were trying to put me in a box. This is, oh, Nikki's depressed. Oh, uh, Nikki's dyslexic. Oh, Nick, Nikki's this. And it was like a checklist, like, oh, she has this, she has this, she has this. And what I try to do with 
those clients who don't believe or even the believer clients is just like, I'm not trying to put you in a box. I'm trying to get that box of yuck that you have hidden behind your back that you don't want to show anybody. I want you to trust me enough to bring it to the light, put it on the table and go through what's ever in that box that is causing your, your feelings that you're having right now. And your clients, what is in that box? I know you can't give every example, yeah. but what are some examples of what's in that box? There's a lot of abuse in that box. It could be physical, mental, emotional, sexual. There's a lot of abuse that happened to him. A lot of trauma in the box. A lot of shameful things that they did in that box, whether it be addictive behaviors or, you know, sexual promiscuity, um, you know, even some people who traffic themselves, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of hurt in that box. Is most of this abuse similar to your verbal abuse from parents? It's all different, but yet it's all the same. Mm -hmm. You know, because maybe it wasn't a parent, maybe it was a, a spouse or a friend or a teacher or, you know, it's all different, but it all leaves a trauma wound. And it all, I feel like, if you don't deal what's in that box, of course, it's going to trigger all these different things. Of course, it's going to trigger anxiety, depression, you know, suicidal tendencies, self-abuse, eating disorders. It sparks so many eating disorders in, in people. How do you start to deal with what's within that box? I just tell them, it's like, if we don't deal within the box, it's always going to have control over you. You want to take your power back. Whatever's in that box, whatever situation, whatever word, whatever happened to you, whatever sound, whatever movement, whatever smell that's in that box, we got to deal with that head on. Because if we don't, it's always going to creep back up and try to pull you back down. How do you, let's say I'm a young girl and I trafficked myself for drugs yeah. because I had something going on. How do you deal? So someone comes to you and they're extremely shameful. And yeah. the shame keeps pulling them down. What are some steps yeah. you can deal with that? You know, it's like we try to f figure out what's the most pressing thing in that box that needs to come out. Because you can't throw it all out at once and try to deal with everything on the table. It's too much. You're not going to deal with anything well. And so I like to them i'll take them through a visualization exercise where they're on a path they have the box they stop at the spot you know they sit down they're relaxed they open the box and it's, what do they see so i lead them through that exercise it's more detailed than that but whatever pops up at that moment is what I believe comes from God that they need to deal with. Whether they're a believer or not, like I'm still believing that this thing came from God. And that's where we take that one thing out of the box, close the box back up, put it away, and we deal with what is happening to this thing that they pulled out of their box. What is attached to it? Where did it come from? How did it manifest? How did it entangle and web itself into that person's life? 
So when you get that one thing you're going to start with, then what are some yeah. like techniques you use with them to handle that one thing? It's usually, so we take that one thing out and we're like, where did this start? Where did you first experience this thing, this trauma? Where were you? What was happening? What was the circumstance? And usually through this exercise, they can, they go, they like pinpoint back in time. I mean, somebody can be in their late 60s, but it brings them back to a time in their life where they were extremely young. And then once we can pinpoint it and figure out what was happening and why it happened, we can see how that one instance when you were young got its hands into a lot of dysfunction, a lot of your sadness, a lot of your depression that's happening right now because of that one triggered event. And usually if you deal with that one thing in that box, usually the hardest thing comes up first and you untangle the web, the other things in the box are important, but they're not as powerful as that first one. So when you, it's so funny as you're saying this, like I have something in my brain that bothers me that I went right back to sixth grade and this girl called me short and said, the only reason she's not dating me because I'm shorter than her. And I'm not short now. I'm 5'10". I'm average height. But like, I'm 36 and that still bothers me. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So when you find the origin of me being shorter Mm -hmm. than a girl I liked, where do I go from there? Well, it's just like, how did that affect you? Like, where, why are you still carrying it around at 36? Why did those words carry so much weight? You know, words are just meant, words like that are just meant to like go right, go right by you. Why did you allow that? I always have like sticky notes when I'm like working with my clients. I have one here. It's like, why did you make that, that stick? Yeah. And why did, not only did you make it stick, why is it still sticking to you? And it's, I'll be a little personal. It's so illogical. I, and I hit puberty later than like all my friends and it really bothered me they had like deeper voices and they were they had adult bodies i had like a boy's body and i don't have a boy's body now i have a receding hairline but it's like it still it bothered me so much i i carry it with me today and i'm sure your clients have similar things although i don't have trauma because of it but i think about it once in a while which is crazy yeah yeah. So why are your clients, or even in you, why are people letting things stick to them when it's so illogical? It's, it's, it is so illogical. And it's, I worked with a group of women at Grace Centers of Hope. Um, and these are women who are usually been uh, either court appointed to go there, or they've been trafficked, drug abused, homeless. And this was a very powerful exercise because they they write down all those things that stuck to them, right? All those things that stuck. And it was just like we had to get to the root of like, why do you, why are you letting those things stick? Because some of them, they just don't make any sense at all. Like one of the things that always stuck with me that I was fat, I was never fat a moment in my life, you know, and I, I got an eating disorder because I thought I was fat, but I was never fat. I was always extremely thin. And like, why did I let fat 
stick is because the person who told it to me, I trusted. And so if somebody I trust calls me that, or, you know, like that girl that said that to you, maybe you had a crush on her. So she said that to you and it hurt and it stuck because somebody that you liked said something and you question yourself because of what they said. Absolutely. And I felt like so embarrassed because it wasn't something I could like train for or I, I could let's yeah. say, not that eating disorders are good, but I couldn't like develop an eating disorder and get taller. So for me, for right. me, it sounds so sad. I'm talking out loud, but for me, it was like pure hopelessness. Like there's nothing I can do to yeah. get taller. My life is over. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they get that thing, they find the origin and they're kind of working through it and it's unsticking. Where else are you moving right. them to, to get them to have joy be their superpower? Well, you know, just the process of unsticking and ripping that out of you and the connections that it has in your body. And actually, you know, if you're a believer, we're giving it to God because he doesn't want any of us to hold on to that. So often we have these things like stuck all over us and we're walking around just waiting to be affirmed in those ways. And God's like, no, hand them all over to me. I'll take that away. You don't have to carry that anymore. And so we go through the process of dismantling, flipping the script on each of those things that they allow to stick with that to them that has no concrete evidence. That's the thing. A lot of times we're walking around telling ourselves that if we were to go into a court of law and try to argue it in front of a judge, we would have zero concrete evidence besides our opinion. We'd have zero fact to back it up. So what does it mean or how does someone give it to God? What's the process of that look like? It's different. Like a lot of times I'll lead the client through an exercise where we put these things on our sticky notes, the word, the phrase, whatever it is, the shame, the wound, whatever it is. And after we've gone through that process of working through it, we've worked through something, we can take that off. And we literally tear this up. We could stomp on it. We could set it on fire. We can throw it in the garbage. Like we are ripping this identity out of our DNA and we just picture ourselves handing it to God. It's not hard. Like it's not like a big ceremony or whatever. It's just like ripping it off and laying it down at the feet of Jesus. But I caution people. I'm like, when you do that, sometimes we still want to hold on to it. We've given it up. We've healed the wound, but we still want a piece of it. And I said, I tell people, I'm like, that's what that little extra pocket is on your jeans in the front. Like nobody knows what it <laughs> <Yes>. is. <laughs> I'm like, that's where you take that one thing. You ripped it up. You gave it to God or you just put it to bed and then you take it. You like pick it up when nobody's looking and you're like, a little dose of shame one day i'm just gonna stick it in this little pocket and that's why people sometimes have repeated wound cycles isn't that crazy that people for some reason and i'm no different want to keep a little shame it's like i want to keep a little bit of ice cream for tomorrow but why am i keeping a little piece of shame what is what a stupid thing to do it's so 
crazy. And even I work through things with my life coach. I'm like, how many times do I have to go over this wound? And like God will highlight it again. I'm like, okay, here we go again. Here we go. There was a little piece that I didn't give over to him. There was a little piece I stuck back into the pocket. Here we go. Got to do all the hard work again. <laughs> There's almost comfort in these familiar negative emotions. Absolutely. Like I tell my daughter, she got into a bad habit of saying something negative about herself. And I'm like, she's like, why do I keep saying it, mama? And I'm like, it's because you got into the habit of, of saying that. And now you think that of yourself. And I said, now we have to retrain your whole thought process for 30 to 60 days to dismantle that word out of your mind, out of your identity, out of your vocabulary, because you have enmeshed it inside of yourself. This is so interesting to me. So how are you helping people and your daughter retrain their thought process? It's the hard part is discovering who you really are. So I was so depressed and I was all this yuck of dysfunction, right? And so I would model myself after people who were what I thought highly functioning. So I had completely wiped out my God-given identity. And I had to figure out who I was and what I want to be and the qualities that I want to embody. Not that Susie What's-Her-Face has, but who I want to be. And so it's coming to that and using that as a jump off point for, you know, reclaiming yourself. That's difficult, right? To find out yeah. how many people are 50, 60 and they say to themselves, I don't know who I am. That's I get that almost every day. How do you, how do you figure out who you are? Well, it starts with like, what automatically sparks you joy? Like right now in this moment, like what makes you happy? Like, what is that thing? And it's like, kind of like, we got to reverse engineer. Okay, this one thing makes you happy. Or what's the one thing that helps you relax? You know, who are the people that lift you up? What if you could think of yourself doing anything? What would that thing be? So I think I know the answer for you. If you could think of yourself only doing one thing, what would that be? What sparks your happiness? Pulling people out of the pit. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like earlier in your life you were maybe like pushing towards a goal and now you're being pulled towards your mission in life? Absolutely. Because in my like late 20s to like 35, I excelled in endurance sports because I could push towards a goal. Right. I knew I wanted to do something that was like beyond what I thought was possible. And so I did Ironman races and marathons and and all the stuff. I was pushing myself beyond what was possible, but I didn't realize what I had to do. What was what I thought was beyond impossible was to heal myself, to pull myself out of depression and help others do the same thing. It's very sad to me to hear that you hear on a daily basis, 
I'm 55, I'm 60. I don't know who the yeah. hell I am. Right. What are the, and how, how did I, get, how did here? I get here? What are some of the things people figure out when they work with you about who they are or what their mission is? I mean, first of all, they realize that they have worth and they have value and that it's not too late to go after things that they love. I mean, I get a lot of people who just feel like stuck in their career, stuck on this track and like they can't get out of it because this is who everybody else thinks that they are. So they have to be this one way, this one thing, you know, especially with temperament sometimes. Sometimes people are just used to letting people walk all over them and to treat them like yuck. And it's just like when you start realizing your worth and your identity and you start pushing back on that, those are the people who are going to try to reaffirm your old identity. And so it's it's a whole process of just doing the hard work, unfortunately. I think you're so right on that. When you earlier talked about speaking death into you or speaking life yeah. into you, as soon in my life, as soon as I started to be more authentic or be more myself, yeah. the people around you, some the ones that don't, they go wild. They're like, how could you do this to yeah. us? How They're like, yeah. what? Yeah. Like, how could you get happy and betray all of us? <laughs> Why don't you want to go get drunk at the bar and like co co commiserate with me? And, yeah, you know, the, and that's scary for people because it's maybe your late thirties, early forties. I'm not sure. It's 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 so hard to like lose your friends in your forties because it's it's hard to make friends in your forties. Absolutely, it is. But I feel like once you start gaining freedom. I believe God always puts people in your path on purpose after that. Like he, again, unlikely relationship. Like I'm almost 50. My best friend is in her early thirties, but God put us together at this conference. And it was just like meeting my sister, you know, and she speaks life. She gives me tough love. She does all the things, you know, she's not a yes person. She's somebody who challenges me and I do the same thing to her. And it's like, it's such a freeing relationship when you have somebody in that life that's that's not going to get mad at you because you called them out on something. They're going to be like actually grateful and be like, thank you. I didn't even know I was doing that, you know? And he, I mean, so many of my friends now, I I think of it that way. It was just like one was here and then a couple of years later, another one came along and then another one. Do I have my big group of my, you know, because I used to get drunk with that? No, but I have people who love me, who my true authentic self will clap for me when I do something hard and fall on my face and then encourage me to get back up again and try something new, something different and see if that works. It's like, as soon as you let go, like you said, give it to God and you, yeah, better things happen. But that letting go is like so scary to do. It's so scary, especially if you're in, you know, like your forties, fifties, sixties, you, you pretty much locked into who you thought you were and how it's going to, the story is going to play out and to dis dismantle that. 
and step into your your true identity is is so hard it's one of those things that a lot of times it's like you know three steps forward one step back two steps forward two step you know it's like a little a little dance i think what you said to too it's never too late never too late i think some of the biggest regrets people have at the end of their life will be I was never my true self or I never truly explored my passions. That's right. And it was just like, you know, I feel like I'm a walking testimony to a lot of that because I got married later in life. I had my daughter when I was almost 40 years old. You know, I I stopped teaching at 42. I switched careers to become a personal trainer and then You know, I had another calling on my heart to be a life coach. So it was just like changing these things, like they're all related, but they're all different. They're all teaching, they're all educating, they're all looking at somebody and trying to bring them to a next level, but it's it's different. And at first it's scary, but I feel like once you get used to stepping out into the unknown, it becomes easier and easier. So when you're going through your daily routine, mm-hmm. maybe you call it prayer or maybe you call it meditation, are yeah. you visualizing your future self or what are you doing in the mornings to get ready for the day? Yeah, so I usually have my Jesus time and I I do a visualization kind of like meditation where I just visualize myself in the garden with Jesus. It's just, I just have this picture of this like secret garden where Jesus meets me. And each time I go to the gate before I go into the garden, I'm a different age. So I might be like five-year-old Nikki or like teenage Nikki or late 20 Nikki or like present age Nikki. It's just whatever it is that day. And I go into the garden and I have a conversation with Jesus. I'm very visual. I can see things. I can feel things. And it's just having a conversation of whatever comes up that day. Are you deliberate on what age Nikki is when you enter the garden or just whatever comes to mind? I don't know. I don't know until the gate is open. Wow. I don't know until the gate. Yeah. And then how long do you do this prayer meditation for? I mean, it depends. It could be a minute. It could be 20 minutes. But... There's no, I don't put a time constraint on it because it's whatever I need that day. Do you carve out time though? Is that, is that the first thing you do every morning? Yeah. Okay. So I meditate in the mornings too. And mm-hmm. I, I carve out anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. But I feel like if you don't carve that time out, like you're not going to get to it. Because you can't meditate right. or pray at 3 p.m. when the kids come home from school, everyone's running wild. Right. And it. And it has to be a space where they like, I have this little corner at the top of our stairs, like my husband, my daughter, no, if I'm in the Jesus corner, nope, you don't come into the Jesus corner. You Um, always have to be, you have to know nobody's going to come in so you can like fully relax your mind and body. Yeah. You're an inspiration. I know (laughs) you don't need me to tell you this, but- you went from someone being called having clinically resistant or treatment resistant clinical depression 
to mm-hmm. somebody whose superpower is joy. Yeah. There's so many people out there, and especially dentists who are listening, they're so yeah. depressed. And you are the beacon of hope that that one man gave you 20 years ago for the people listening. Mm-hmm. So I truly appreciate everything you're saying to me today. Yeah. So we're coming up on the hour mark. And I always mm-hmm. ask at the end, what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this hour interview? It's never too late to change your life. I went to some, I went from being somebody who hated myself, who tried to kill myself, who would self abuse myself, just hating life, cry all the time, be angry all the time to somebody who is happy, who is full of joy, who has a a new lease on life, who has expectancy for good things to happen, who can't even, like knows I was that other person, but can't even imagine ever going back to that way. And so for those out there who are thinking like, I'll always be depressed, I'll always be in this situation, I will always be in this career relationship, whatever is not life-giving, you can change. If I can do it, like I think that's the message God wants me to give to everyone. If I can do it, you can do it. I am nobody special. I don't, I didn't have any specialized training to get out of the pit. I got out of the pit and then I got training so I could help other people. But if I can do it, anybody can. And it's not as hard as we make it. Yes, you have to do the work, but it's not as hard as you think it's going to be. Yes, you have to do the work, but it's the most important thing you can do for yourself and your loved ones. Yeah. Again, and that's why I tell people when they work with me, I'm like, I'm, I'm your battle buddy. We're going, we're going into battle. We're doing this together. You have me as a lifeline. You have me as support. Against all odds, your mother called you fat and stupid, depressed, suicidal. Doctor said you were treatment resistant. And you're talking to me today, glowing through the computer screen, being joyful. I'm so lucky to know you. I'm so lucky our kids go to school together. I cannot thank you enough. We have to get you back on for a part two. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And I'll talk to you soon, Nikki. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. You're welcome.